Hey, you're listening to About Time, a podcast produced by Timely, the world's first AI-powered time-tracking app. For an automatic record of all of your time, head to timelyapp.com. In the past four episodes, we've completely unpicked the concept of a singular universal time. We've seen that the cells of our bodies keep their own individual time, and that the time we experience is unique to the chemical footprints and firings of our brains. But in spite of this, the majority of us still rule our lives by standardized clocks and calendars. Even though time is not physically tangible, we've made it measurable and place systems to track it at the heart of our societies. So how did we get here? How did we invent material time? And why, in our self-aware postmodern world, do we continue to buy into the idea? I'm Emily, and this is The Construction of Time. tied inextricably with time from the moment we are conceived, living in trimesters, glimpsed through scans and born against a number. And in the West, this metered objective form of time continues to define our basic existence throughout life. It gives us an age, a framework for ordering our consciousness and an index to give it meaning. But this material, countable form of time is something we have invented. The time we use in our daily lives that wakes us, tells us when to start work, when to eat and when to go home, is largely a social construction. Beyond the evidence of physical laws, beyond our individual experience of time, it is only through our collective participation in this metric system of time that it continues to exist. We take for granted that calendars and clocks are cultural creations, not physical truths. That seconds and minutes, or the length of a week, have as much to do with culture and politics as with empirical science. Most of us still believe time is unified, tangible and credible, instead of something society has invented to organise and regulate itself. But all of us, Even the most fundamental physicists count the days and contemplate the years. We happily live a double life, where time is both individually experienced and objectively true for everyone. And in being so pervasive and so useful, countable time may just be the greatest tool humans have ever invented. Days are where we live. They come, they wake us, time and time over. Where can we live but days? Philip Larkin's existential question cuts to the heart of our most basic experience and unit for counting time. For centuries, we have divided time into days. The word day itself deriving from an Indo-European root meaning to divide. And this repeated night and day cycle has even stamped itself into our own internal clocks, expressed through the circadian rhythms of all plants, animals and bacteria. 
It is from such repeated natural cycles that human society first began to measure time. The day was probably the first recorded human interval of time, alongside seasons and the appearance of events in the natural world, like moon cycles, constellations and tides, as Dr. Paul Glenny explains. Time reckoning is built up through dividing elements that are evident in the universe. So the day, the year, the month are identifiable cycles. Particular moments can be recognised and repeatedly identified as the start of a particular unit. And in its first forms, this time reckoning was not purely about numbers. Instead, we used indicators like shadows to mark time with the shadow stick representing humankind's first clock. This could be as basic as a tree casting a shadow, or as striking as an Egyptian obelisk. You just needed to follow the position of a shadow to glean a general sense of time. Similar constructions were used to track lunar cycles, like Stonehenge, which was built in 4000 BC to track eclipses and solstices to keep seasons, agricultural cycles and religious celebrations. But even though these timekeepers used the periodic behaviour of real occurrences in nature, like the movement of planets, the order they tried to impose was continually undermined. The periodic rise and fall of tides twice daily sets a misleading benchmark, since the Moon's distance from the Earth fluctuates during its orbit affecting tide height and consistency. The Earth also has a highly irregular and unpredictable rotation. It can deviate by a second or two a year and gradually slows down by a thousandth of a second every 100 years. So by pinning time's measurement to the Earth's orbit, our days can vary in length depending on the season. The 24-hour time we have since used to divide days is born out of social convenience for a regular, repeating unit, rather than based on a physical constant. Mean solar time divides our days into 24-hour periods, based on the perceived passage of the sun across the meridian, or noon, when the sun is highest in the sky. And we stick to it even though the physical appearance of daylight changes dramatically from winter to summer. But it's by no means the only way for measuring a day. Another approach, called sidereal time, uses an imaginary point in the sky occurring at the spring equinox to charter the Earth's orbit instead of using the Sun. A sidereal day is shorter than a solar one, about 23 hours and 56 minutes, but it's by no means less valid. The 24-hour mean solar time formulation is simply more popular. And even then, we need to realise that our orbital measurement of time is not consistent across the rest of the universe. Day and year categorizations of time quickly lose meaning when you consider Mercury, whose axis rotation is so slow that a day can actually last longer than a year. So our division of time, while taken from physically observable rhythms, is completely specific to our precise position on Earth and within space. Our system for time does not apply outside of it. From days and months, we move to another enduring construction of calendrical time, weeks. 
Weeks are completely artificial divisions of time. They aren't based on celestial movement within the universe, and the sheer number of different weeks throughout history is a telling indicator of how arbitrary they are. In ancient Rome and pre-Christian Celtic society, a week lasted for eight days. But Welsh and Baltic languages speak of a nine-day week. The ancient Chinese and ancient Egyptian calendars both favoured a 10-day week, while Javanese, Korean and 10th-century Icelandic calendars preferred five. A Basque community holds the record for the shortest week, coming in at just three days. While our annual calendars are actually informed by natural celestial movement, they also suffer from cultural intrusions. The world's first real calendar can be traced back 5,000 years and was created by the Sumerians, who also created one of the world's first writing systems, cuneiform. They were the first to divide the year into 12 months of 30 days. Eight centuries later, the Babylonians rounded this up to 360 days and the Egyptians then added five days onto the end. But it wasn't until the Julian calendar of 45 BC the base for modern calendars was set. This Julian calendar created a year of 365 days with an extra day for each fourth year in February to solve the problem of an extra quarter day. It gave us the familiar name, order and length of months we still use today. But it wasn't quite perfect, being 11 minutes longer than the solar year. Pope Gregory XIII reduced this error factor to about 2.5 days for each 10,000 years, and his Gregorian calendar went on to be widely adopted across most of Roman Catholic Europe from the late 16th century. But even though we continue to use this form today, it's still not scientifically perfect. The closer we look at time, the more we see that the world's calendric systems are largely cultural tools built to celebrate, strengthen and entrench religions and authorities. For one, the world's calendars don't actually agree on when each year begins. Gregorian calendars start with the birth date of Christ, Jewish calendars with the date of biblical creation, and Muslim calendars with Muhammad's flight from Mecca to Medina. When you look at the case of former President Niyazov of Turkmenistan, who renamed all of the months of the year, notably naming April after his mother, you see that time-reckoning tools are also expressions of different socio-political designs and value systems. While they might take some empirical cues from astronomical cycles, they are still cultural products. But what about the smaller units? What of hours, minutes and seconds? While it's easy to think that these are the property of modern mechanical clocks, they also have an impressive heritage. Seconds have been around since ancient Egypt, and even rudimentary sundials subdivided time into specific numeric units. Hourglasses and water clocks existed in the ancient world across the Mediterranean and China, so clearly the drive to measure smaller, more practical units of time has been long established. It's in this drive to track more granular time that we see the social construction of timekeeping most clearly. As the evolution of calendars has shown, celestial cycles are highly irregular and unreliable, and basing an instrument on the sun or moon is highly flawed. So to truly make use of time, 
To truly conquer it, humans had to organise time better than nature had. And here, we got really creative. We embedded marbles in burning candles and tied knots in burning rope to mark off regular equal increments of time. We created hourglasses and water clocks using the level within a bowl to meter out hours. And when we got frustrated by the inconsistencies of these flow-based timekeepers, we started playing around with falling weights to create measured oscillations. One of the earliest mechanical clocks was created at Dunstable by monks and used falling weights and gear trains to ring a bell to call people to prayer. These cropped up across the 14th century in bell towers of great European cities, placing time at the heart of communities. This is the true era when clock-regulated time began in a public sense. And for a long time, the main experience of clock time was oral. Due to illiteracy, public clocks used sound instead of numbers to mark the hours. The very word clock actually originates from Latin and German words for bell. But early clocks also showed lunar, solar and planetary cycles. Many used entertainment to inform, with mechanical characters performing tricks on the hour. In terms of precision, they left a lot to be desired. But in social terms, they became a symbol of strength and wealth. Many were scaled down to be displayed in the homes of noblemen, making an interest in time a powerful social statement. Then came the turn towards vibration, the desire to create a constant motion within timepieces. Across Italy and southern Germany, clocks started appearing in the 1500s that replaced drive weights with coiled iron springs, which turned an axle to produce the clockwise motion we are familiar with today. The invention was sensational and sparked the mass production of clocks. It brought time into people's homes, as inventors competed to build clocks on the smallest scale possible, suitable for shelves and tables and carrying in your pocket. Jewellers lay at the heart of precision clockmaking, making timepieces more reliable by using durable sapphires and rubies as bearings. While our modern equivalents use synthetic forms, precision watches used up to 23 jewels. Then, in 1583, Galileo ushered in a new level of timekeeping accuracy with his application of pendulum oscillation. Its movement over equal spaces and equal time made it the ideal regulator. But in the quest for the purest timekeeper, the pendulum still didn't cut it. Isaac Newton's model of independent time had helped construct modern physics. But as the discipline expanded, the call for ever more accurate and revealing timekeepers increased. You couldn't measure things as delicate as the speed of light with pendulums or coiled springs. So scientists turned to frequency, first using electricity for its steady flow of charge and signal frequencies per second, and then, in 1929, using a common mineral, quartz, to harness the vibrations it produced under pressure. But these inventions still fell short of fine time, 
and it would take until 1955 to get there. The discovery was first made by Austrian-American physicist Isidore Rabi with his technique of magnetic resonance. It allowed scientists to measure the natural resonant frequency of atoms, which they then applied to build the first atomic clock. These clocks use the remarkably consistent electromagnetic radiation of vibrating atoms to count increments of time, precise to one billionth of a second. Atomic time serves as the ultimate standard for timekeeping throughout the world, informing every wristwatch, computer, radio telescope and mobile clock, and is disseminated through the satellites of the Global Positioning System, or GPS. It's the crowning achievement in human civilization's timekeeping history. We can now grasp the picosecond, which is the shortest period of time science can accurately measure. But it's still not a perfect solution, because our search for a mathematically pure time will always be at odds with the irregular realities of our physical universe. The Earth's rotation is actually slowing down, meaning that we have to introduce leap seconds every 500 days or so to keep our atomic timekeepers in tune with our environment. Our clocks, calendars, sundials and graphs are all instruments we have culturally created to turn an abstract concept into a measurable entity. By using closed, repeated segments, like sets of 24 hours or groups of seven days, we have made time qualitative. And given the sophistication and technicality of our timekeepers, it's easy to believe that time is a physically real thing. But in reality, there is no proven physical truth to what we are counting. We have just created useful systems for observing and talking about change. But how did we get here? From a string of local timekeepers, how did we arrive at this unified sense of time we have today? Clearly, our interest in time dates several millennia, but the creation of a consistent global time is much more modern. Before the world's governments got together to standardise time, communities lived according to their own local time, with village and city clock towers ringing out midday whenever the sun reached its highest point in the sky. If you were in Venice, your midday would arrive a good half hour ahead of midday in Turin. It's on this small-scale, local level that we see the first efforts towards time standardisation, largely in response to increased access to different timekeeping technologies. One of the features of the proliferation of clocks is that people become aware that as soon as you have several clocks, you have potentially several different times being indicated. So which is the right one? That's one of the main impulses to trying to standardise time locally. By setting an official local time, communities were able to form loose local networks of coordination useful for structuring everyday rhythms like the time for markets and prayer. But these local times posed huge problems for those seeking to coordinate activities with other communities. 
The advent of the telegraph and railway in the 19th century made the need for a synchronized time more pressing. You simply couldn't run an efficient or safe train service when timetables between stations were based on separate local times. The problem was most painfully demonstrated in America, which operated across hundreds of different local times. The state of Michigan alone had 27 of them. In the case of growing transport networks, synchronized time made the difference between acceptable operation and complete catastrophe. So it makes sense that history has focused on railways in the effort to unify time. Charles Ferdinand Dowd first popularised national railroad time in 1873, and his recommendation ultimately went on to inform the four standard time belts that split North America into Eastern, Central, Mountain and Pacific time. Social attitudes and industrial practice also played a part. The quest for greater efficiency meant producing products as quickly as possible and moving them to the right place at the right time. Without exact timing, opportunity was lost. But standardising time also became of greater interest to governments and state leaders for more socio-political reasons too, as Dr Paul Glenny explains. The idea of a national time is in part tied up with emergent ideas of, of nation states and with the notion that they should have an integrated infrastructure. But as one looks at this increasingly dense, increasingly refined idea of a standard time over a wider area, we begin to see several groups of people interested in using this standard time. And that becomes increasingly a governmental concern. In the late 19th century, the world's governments got together to definitively solve the problem of standard time on a global scale, finally reaching agreement in 1884 by dividing the world into 24 time zones, each an hour apart. From islands of loose local networks of coordination, each geographic area in the world was stamped with its own official standardised time or at least in theory. To say standard time was unpopular is an understatement. In America, it didn't reach full effect until 1918, when Congress finally approved it. Many people were still fiercely attached to their local time and either put off adopting it or actively protested against the new synchronized order. Religious groups in particular protested railways operating on Sundays and urged people to ignore standard time, which they saw as a direct challenge to Christian time. But despite all this, standard time has endured and it's enabled unprecedented organisation. We wouldn't have a global system of navigation without it or have GPS time. Without accurate, synchronised time across our satellites, we couldn't monitor earthquakes or the movement of tectonic plates, direct the course of aircraft, track forest fires, locate vessels at sea, or use sat-nav in our cars. In making time countable and ordering it in a global system, we can coordinate virtually any action that depends on a sequence of events. From humble origins, 
the clock time we are familiar with in the West today has come to signify our ultimate measuring tool. But it hasn't been an unrelentingly positive journey, and still not everyone views it as a march towards progress. For many, the history of increasingly precise clock time is a history of oppression. It's a view that has become inseparable with industrial age divisions of labour, where increasingly standardised time became a way to pressure acceleration, as Dr Glennie explains. Clock time is seen as an enormously disciplinary technology. It's about a way for one group of people to enforce its expectations on another. The records of employers are full of the time disciplining of workers, the creation of routines, the stipulation of the pace of labor, the, the speed at which machines are going to work, the, the pace to which bodies need to coordinate. Skill becomes defined partly in terms of coordination with, with machinery. And there is in that sense a, an undeniable suppression of the creative dimensions of human existence. In these examples, clock time seems to be socially determined. As historian E.P. Thompson most famously argued, new forms of social discipline made people internalise clock time, and the force it imposed on people's lives was inherently tyrannical and unnatural. We see its destructive peak in the automaton production line world, Taylorism, where the stopwatch and the worker's body became one and the same. But while this disciplinary view of clock time still holds considerable sway, we might have blown it out of historical perspective. Industrialization itself can't account for the whole time experience of diverse 19th century populations. But it has remained dominant because of the limited nature of timekeeping records we have available. Our sense of time as recovered from the historical archive is dominated by disciplinary uses of time. And one has to look relatively hard to discern and to recover non-disciplinary uses of time. And I think it impoverishes our sense of the many ways in which time was a resource with which people were creative, as well as a discipline that ground them down. While the historical archive might be lacking in this respect, by turning attention to our modern existence, we see that time isn't always an oppressor. It can be individually useful and enabling. We use it to validate our personal achievements, structure our actions, hold politicians accountable and price our work. Socially, it represents value, helping us measure effort, happiness, growth, waste and opportunity. We carry clocks in our pocket, set daily alarms, create weekly schedules and report on achievement over time. And there's a sense that we need to be careful with it. We see being on time as an important way of acknowledging the value of a relationship. Our service providers increasingly prioritise convenience, pushing instant access, same-day delivery and 24-hour support. And smart tech, like our own automatic tracker Timely, can show us exactly what we do with our time, so we can be more intentional about how we use it. So while we're still regulated by time, we still have a sort of agency over it. There's a sense that everybody is born with a limited stock of time, and it's up to us to use it well before it runs out.
Throughout this series, we've talked through the stodgy mess of what it means to live with time, both as an objective social system and a subjective experience. We've seen that while we continue to buy into the idea of an independent flowing time, it probably doesn't exist. Einstein's relativity revealed that universal clock time is an illusion, and quantum mechanics has shown that our ordered sense of time is just the result of our blurred perspective of the world, that in the basic grammar of physics, there is no actual distinction between past and future. We know that our steady, regular metric time is at complete odds with the time of our experience, our consciousness and our perception that we feel time and are emotional about it. As we grow older, it seems to condense and speed up, and we observe what appears to be its passage in the ageing of our bodies. Our chemical processes respond to some silent internal clockwork, and we can directly influence how it operates by taking a drug or travelling to a different time zone. And we also know that our personal perception of time is one version among billions of potential ones. That in any given environment, we are actually only conscious of a handful of things. The few fragments our brain focuses on go on to shape our autobiographical memory, which is our personal account of time, the basis for our conscious self. Crucially, the more our knowledge of time grows, the more our popular idea of it evaporates. The concept of time we apply in our daily life is useful. It helps us organize, control and cooperate. But it can't explain the wider workings of our world or our own nature. We still can't definitively solve the problem of time, but we do have glimpses of it and it requires us to focus more on the agents doing the observing, to look closer at ourselves. Ultimately, the mystery of time is wrapped up in how we work, how our brains work, how we interact with the world and how we structure our identity. And the more we explore it, the more we find that it is time that makes us uniquely human. To About Time, a podcast produced by Timely, the world's first AI-powered time tracking app. In case you missed any of our previous episodes, like the physics and psychology of time, you can catch them on our About Time page at timelyapp.com slash about time. If you like what you heard, leave us a review, share it with someone else, or download the episode to relive it all again. Thanks for listening and thanks for your time.